Okay, this is part two in our Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians series. Last week in part one, we looked at chapter one, and uh, we did a bit of background. So this church was planted by three guys, Paul, Silas, also known as Silvanus, and Timothy, and um, they were only in Thessalonica planting the church for a, cu- about a couple of months, anything from three weeks to three months, commentators say, and bizarrely, uh, persecution was so significant that they, the three of them, the three leaders, the, team of le- the early leadership team had to flee at night, and the church continued to be persecuted for a while. So this fledgling church was left vulnerable, and when Paul writes to them a year later, which is the letter we're reading, we're kind of on the edge of our seats because we think this church is going to be floundering. The three planter leaders are only there for a couple of months, new believers, fledgling church, but to our delight and (laughs) amazement, really, this fledgling church, a year in, uh, is not looking fledgling at all. They're not floundering, they seem to be flourishing. And chapter one is loaded with Paul saying, great job on that, great job on that, great job on that. Um, He highlights characteristics, strengths, that they've seemed to have found uh, in just one year. And out of the posse of uh, commendable characteristics, we focused on just verse 3. Paul says you're a church that works and labors and perseveres, but he said it's fueled or energized by faith and by love and by hope. And we celebrated that in the life of their church and our church, that we want to be a church who's busy and working and persevering and all of, all of that, but not a church that's driven or manipulated or coerced or in fear or legalistic. We want our labors and works and perseverance to be fueled by God, faith in Him. He really is who He says He is. Uh, and His love for us and our love for one another and a hope a perseverance fueled by hope. So that was last week. This week we're looking at most of chapter 2. Here we go, verse 1 to 16. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, even though we were only there a couple of months. Uh, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So you're seeing the theme here. The theme is one of church leadership and what it should feel like. He goes on to say, we never came with Words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. 
For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you, even charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Okay, this chapter is about a Christian culture of leading and following. That's the main theme by a mile, a Christian culture of leading and following. And that's our title today. It's about how Paul, Silas, and Timothy led. How did they behave as church leaders in their short time in Thessalonica? And just to be clear, Paul isn't tooting his own horn. Um, he's, what happened is because he had to leave in a hurry, some opponents of his came in and said to the church, you know that guy Paul? He ran away. You can't trust him. He was just in it for the money. He doesn't really care about you. He's a charlatan. Look, he was here, now he's gone. So Paul, and I don't think his motive was uh, fighting for his own reputation per se, but he was concerned for the reputation of the gospel. And that's always a challenge as a Christian leader. If someone lies about you, you don't want to respond to those lies to defend your own reputation because you want to leave that in the Lord's hands. But also you do want to help people who maybe stumbled in their faith because of those lies. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, hey, that, that, that's not the case. Um, he was wanting this young church uh, to have some confidence in him and thus confidence in the gospel. So, the, and so that's the framework. We're very grateful <laughs> for the tough time he had because he really bears his soul on all things church leadership here. It's not just a, a, a high-level group of points on church leadership, it goes right to his heart. We get a lovely window in uh, to the emotion and the motives of church leadership, what they should be. And it's a goldmine for, for leading and following um, in the home and at work. If you're a believer, you want to lead well in the home. If you're a parent, uh, at, well at work if you're a believer as well as in the church. So let's get straight into some of these characteristics. I've got a handful of them and we'll see how far we get. Characteristic number one of Christian leading and following, because the two do go together, is number one, God more, man less. God most, man some, but not as much as God. PJ, what on earth are you talking about? Well, take a look at the blue phrases in the opening salvo of verses. These are God more verses. So I've, I know I've squashed them in, but just look at the God-centered nature of these verses. The first one is, he says, we had boldness in our... It's dangerous as a leader to have boldness in anything else apart from the Lord. As a parent, what is your sense of courage as a parent based on? Is it based on culture? 
Is it based on individualism? Is it based on our current cultural obsession with choice? Because if it is, you're going to have a two, three, four, five, six-year-old, and you're going to be asking them to obey you, not telling them to obey you. Our boldness as parents comes from God. The Bible says, children, obey your parents. So we think as parents, okay, I'm authorized by God to bring my child into obedience. Now, you need wisdom to do that, actually how to do that. But we don't ask young children, please, would you stop talking? That's making it a negotiation. We'll be raising them. in a, ah, Just negotiate. No, God, our boldness is in God. My darling, stop talking. Don't talk. Where does that boldness come? It comes from the Lord. Children, obey your parents, says the word. Okay, I'm authorized to help my child obey me, so I'm not going to ask, ask about that. Please obey me. My boldness is in the Lord. As a church leader, if, if, if boldness is in uh, a, a desire to succeed, it can be a type of boldness that's rather driven, and that would, that would leak into the church. It goes on to say it's the gospel of God, and then we're entrusted with the gospel, He's got a strong sense that this gospel can't be tampered with because it's not his. As a church leader, he can't modify the gospel to make it easier for people to hear. This is an entrustment from God. God is more. God is most in his mind. And he says, I've been approved by God. As a parent, who approves you? Where do you feel your sense of approval from? Do you get it from your kids? If you do, you're in trouble. I want my kids to like me. I want them to approve of me. As a Christian boss, a, a boss who's a Christian at work, who's over people, where do you get your approval from? Those who are over you? Well, that's dangerous. What if they ask you to do something you shouldn't do? Oh no, I'm approved by them. I get my self-worth from them, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that shady deal. Do you get your approval from your co-workers or those under you? Do you always need to be liked? I want to be approved of. No, we're approved by God. As church leaders, where does our approval come from? My sense of approval. Is it that we're doing better than the church down the road? <sighs> Dangerous. Does my sense of approval come from those who I lead? Well, no, that's dangerous. I'll become a people pleaser. Where does it come from? We're approved by God. We, we aim to please God. Who are you trying to tr please as a authority figure in the home or at work or in the church? Who are we ultimately trying to please? What we'll see in a minute, it's not, oh, we don't care what people think. No, it's God more, man less. Still man, but nothing like as much as God. We're trying to please God. He says, God's my witness. God's my witness. When you're leading at work, home, in the church, who's watching? God. So when you're not watching... What does he get up to? Well, the same as when you are watching because God's my witness here and God's my witness there. Paul's saying God is my witness. What do you get up to when you're alone at home? Well, the same as I get up to when people are there because God, you're my main audience. He's saying as a leader, God fills my heart and mind. Nor do we speak nor do we seek glory from people. That's really a, a summary phrase from that. We, we don't seek glory from people. It's not that what people think doesn't count, but it doesn't count anything like as much as what he thinks counts. 
That's the big story. The conclusion, isn't this wonderfully God-centered? I mean, it's, it's very provoking, isn't it? But isn't it, isn't it wonderful? So he's, he's saying this is how we were uh, with you. And then what about man-less? Well, look at these phrases now in black. It's another reoccurring theme, all in the first few verses. Look, look what he says. I'm just going to read them. As you know, as you know, for you remember, you are our witnesses, for you know how. So he's saying, God is most, but you also know how we were amongst you. So from that, we can derive that Paul, as a church leader, he wasn't a hermit. Just in his study all week with the Bible and praying, he was amongst. He goes on, he talks about how he was amongst them, like a family leader of a mother and a father. But he is eager to commend himself, not just to the Lord, but also to them. Mostly to the Lord, but also to them. So, we've got that principle uh, what does that mean for those of us who lead in homework and church? To state the obvious, it means that we must allow the Lord to be a lot more in our gaze and our motives than people. But people must still be something. As followers and as brothers and sisters to each other, we can help one another with this. We can help leaders with this and we can help one another with this. So let me give you a couple of uh, real life um, examples on, on this. So um, a man who has been a, a real father, now maybe a grandfather in the Lord to me, is Terry Virgo. And I've had the privilege of being pretty closely involved with him uh, on, on, on his leadership team of different sorts uh, over the years for, um, I don't know, 15 or more years. Um, and I've watched him up close, and he's just been a big influence in my life. And uh, qu quite a few years ago now, I was preaching at uh, an event he had laid on. Great privilege to preach. And I didn't do very well in the preach. I missed it. I decided to go in a certain direction that I thought was a good direction. It turns out it wasn't a good direction. And um, he chatted to me afterwards. And uh, the first thing he did is he came and he gave, and I was feeling really embar embarrassed and low because I just hadn't done well. He comes and gives me a hug and he blocked my ear, my right ear, and he spoke to my left ear and he said, he said, PJ, I want my voice to be the only voice you hear at the moment. So I was already. <laughs> <laughs> and he went on to affirm me. And uh, when he stopped, I said, hey, I'm so sorry I went in that direction. I, I thought it was the right thing to do and I, I just see now that it wasn't. And do you know what he said to me? He said, PJ, it might have been misguided, but I love that you did it because you thought the Lord wanted you to do it. And I said, yeah, I did, but I do see now it was misguided and I won't do it again. And he just went, smile. Now what he, had, what he did in that moment, he had, he had every right to say, PJ, I am not pleased with you and what you did was unhelpful. And he could have gone that route. But he said to me, 
PJ, and this was the bit that really made an impact on me. He said, you know, we must guard, we must guard acting as leaders and preachers in a way that we think pleases God. And somehow in this little mess I'd made, he, he, he prioritized affirming my desire to please God. And what he was doing was keeping me well clear of fear of man and even an overstated fear of or, or, or desire to please him. He just nudged me towards keep being a leader and a preacher who speaks and lives like you think God wants you to live. And that, I found that so freeing and it marked me. I've got a, I just want to see if I missed out anything else on that. Yeah, he was pushing me to have God most and people some. Um, then there was another instance where someone else did something similar. I was in the meeting, it wasn't me that time. <laughs> the other friend of mine in Africa, and, and he, again, he tried something, went in a direction that just wasn't right. And uh, I was listening in to Terry and someone else when, th when they were saying, who's going to chat to him? Here's how the conversation went. Oh, poor chap. He had a bit of a rough evening, and I know he was trying to do the right thing. It didn't go down as he intended. Um, let me get to him quickly, because we don't want him to have a, have a bad night on this, and we'll just encourage him. He meant well. And, and that's just such a wonderful thing, because if as a leader, or even as a, as a, as a child... One of, one of your children or a work colleague, if you make a mistake and this bah, 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 it can put you in fear of ever making a mistake again. And, and you're, you can move to people more and God less. It's very subtle, but you move towards desire to keep people happy more than the Lord. And we can help one another, nudge one another. Hey, I, I know you didn't do so well there, but we love it that you're trying to please the Lord. Go for it again. Uh, some churches, and, and we don't have this, not by a mile, some churches have a dreadful culture of the preacher receiving multiple emails on Monday morning from just people giving their thoughts. Uh, no, I need to have my, my say. And that's illogical, because if it's a small thing, it's not worth mentioning. And if it's a medium to large size thing, the leadership team are going to work it through anyway. So it doesn't really make much sense. have lots of that, that coming in. But even more than being illogical, it can unintentionally push people, push the preachers, push the leader, push your small group leader, if you're auditing heavily how they lead the group. It can push them towards, oh, I, just, I need to keep the people happy because I don't want to get those discouraging emails. God more. Man less, not nothing, but less. And then verse 13 on the similar theme is, is really qu quite wonderful. Paul says, and we also thank God for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So again, Paul's, Paul's stating the reality that we receive God's word and receive Christian leadership. It's from God, but it's through people. <laughs> so the delivery system isn't perfect. The product is perfect, but the delivery system isn't. And he's saying, I'm grateful to you that you were able to figure out 
that there is a difference between the delivery system and the product, between man and God. He said, I'm grateful that you received it from us, but as God's word, not as the words of men. And then he makes a wonderful point. He says, God's word, which is at work within you. He doesn't say, I as a leader am at work within you. He says, no, God's word is the the thing that's at work within you. So lay hold of God's word. We could say that leaders work from the outside. God's word works from the inside. And that's helpful to us, isn't it? That when a preacher isn't a bit off form, and if the church leaders are a bit off color, you think that's not great leadership, that's not great preaching. Only think that thought briefly and dial in to, to the, the product, the word, because that's what works in us. So another analogy is, I, I think of you've got leaders and you've got God. Each one of us, we need to have a foot on each. Definitely have a foot on each. God's given us leaders. Foot on leaders, a foot on God. But which is our weight on? It's on God. So if leaders do well, we're not, oh, the leaders, the leaders, my life is just so affected because the leaders are doing so. And similarly, if the leaders do badly, we still were steady on God. We just get a little bump. Foot on both, but weight on God. God more. Say God more. more. People less. It's not people nothing, of course. It's people something, but God is more. Uh, Secondly, then more, now less. It's a short little one. I touched on it last week. Verse 12, Paul says, We exhorted, encouraged, and charged. Now think about those words. Exhort, encourage, charge. That's that's like, come on, people. For what? For you to walk in a manner worthy of our God who calls us to his own kingdom and glory. Now I just love this little phrase because I see Paul making a lot of our best life then and only less of our life on earth now and this is so different from what preaching can be and the temptation of preachers and church leaders to overstate your best life now and what God can do to make you have a better life now he says here he says you are called to God's kingdom and glory he says your primary calling is not actually to things in this world, it's things to the, in the next world. And in this world, he says, live a life, in, live in a manner pleasing to God. But he says your calling is there. Last week we said if eternity is this, as wide as this room, then our life on earth here is just like as thin as one page. Life on earth is very, very, and very, very short. And Paul says the culture of Christian leadership should be helping people look beyond the grave. That should be where the weight, the bias, the emphasis is beyond the grave. It's not that God doesn't have blessings for us in this life, but we're called to his own kingdom and glory. Best life then, not best life now. And that's not easy for our ears to hear, because, oh man, we're living in the moment, right? But the weight of scripture is towards the next life more than this life. So we can talk about this life, receive God's blessings and help in this life, but we're a heaven-focused people as well. Characteristic number three is he shared both Scripture and himself with them. We shared the gospel of God with you, but also our own selves. Isn't that wonderful? 
leading in the home, leading at work, and particularly leading at church, Christian culture of leadership is not to be aloof and just to preach the Word of God as our only connection point. We preach and share the Word, but we also share our lives. Hey, do you want to get together? Do you want to come over? Maybe we can come to your house. Let's just sit down and talk about that. Yeah, I also find that difficult. Really? Yeah, let me tell you about what I find difficult. Let me tell you about my struggles. I'm sharing my life with you, not just the Word of God. In other letters, he stresses the importance of sharing the Word of God, like 2 Timothy 4, preach the Word. But here, he's stressing share lives. We shared our lives with you. Remember those uh, black phrases, and you know, and you know, and you remember, and you remember. Imagine if they said, no, we didn't know, because we never saw you. You went from the green room to the pulpit, the song just before you preached, then back to the green room, and then we don't know how you got out the building, but you did. <laughs> and probably you went home, but your address is an absolute secret. No one knows where you live. And then, you get that? That's not what he's presenting here. But can I just say, having just given an elbow in the rib, ribs for a certain type of leadership that's quite common today, it's very tempting as a leader to do green room to pulpit, to green room to home, to not let anyone know where you live and not to give anyone your phone number because it can be abused. So leaders have got a choice. Do we go the biblical route of leading? even if it might be abused? Or do we go some other route for self-preservation reasons? And the answer is we go the Bible route. But we also talk about this together because we are a family. Jesus laid his head, I mean, John laid his head on Jesus' chest. Jesus was amongst, he was in the boat sleeping with him. Remember that part? He was, he was just so whacked. So guys, I'm, so, I'm going to sleep. And then the storm arose. He was right there amongst. He did, he did life with them. Paul was the same. And here he's saying, it's like I was a father and mother with you. Spiritually speaking, I was changing diapers with you. <laughs> we were together. What's the primary metaphor for God? It's father. What's the primary metaphor for the church? Organization. No, it's family. We guard the family thing. We guard it. So a few little things, and, and again, I just want to say, we're a year in, and I'm not preaching anything corrective in all of this. I'm preaching, hallelujah, thank you, let's keep going. Um, but let's get to church a bit earlier and leave a bit later, and get to know a few people. I just meet people, forget names, just, just do that, go, hello, I'd like to meet you. We're a family. Uh, talk to people. Do you know who's sitting around you? Even it's just saying, hi, we're a family. We're not going to drift into this becoming an organization or feeling like Monument is a meeting. No, Monument is a family who does meetings. Potluck, sit with people you don't know. Um, ask someone for a meal. Say, do you want to get together for a meal? Let's ask some easy questions. Just begin to get to know. I was uh, chatting to a guy at the gym the other day, and the conversation predictably went, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, and do you know where he went? Like in a flash, he went to, oh, ch 
churches around here are, are organizations. They're so unfriendly. You go and you sit in the meeting and then you just leave afterwards and no one says hello to you. This was just a few, few days ago. That should not be. We should be known above all. That wasn't our church. I don't know who. But, but we need to watch for that. It, it can so easily happen unless we're, we had, unless we're all on it. We had a wonderful encouragement at prayer and fasting. Someone who's only been part of our church for a few months um, said by way of encouragement, she said, um, I'm not actually sure who the welcoming team is, but the whole church feels like a welcoming team. And I can see a lot of people sort of, you know, air pumping uh, <laughs> under their chairs. Oh God, might that be true and might we keep being like that and more? Please God, that Lord. Lord. Small groups, know and be known. It's not just the word of God. It's, it's I shared myself with them. Sometimes I've got a great small group, but sometimes I have that sort of five o'clock feeling. <sighs> okay, small group tonight. And I can have two motivations. I can get excited about reading the word with my brothers and sisters, but also I can just be excited about sharing my life with them letting them share theirs with me. In some small groups, you, ha you, haven't, you come away without great revelation from God, but we've shared our lives. We know what's going on in his life. We prayed for her again and again. We're, we're bearing one another's burdens, helping one another. Fourth characteristic, they were bold and gentle. How are you doing as a parent and as a boss on that? Are you more gentle than bold or bold than gentle? On gentleness, it was common in Roman families for there to be a, a, a paid nurse. And I've read up on this. Gentleness was the key characteristic. Above all, they looked for gentleness in a nurse. And Paul blends a real mother and a nursing mother. And he says, I was like a nursing mother amongst you. Remember, this was in quite a patriarchal society. Admittedly, Thessalonica was quite progressive in terms of, of women's rights and so on. We said that last week. But for him, the great apostle Paul say, hey, I was trying to be like a mom. That's wonderful. He says, I was, I was like a father, but I wasn't a burden to you like a father should be. And, but he said, I exhorted, encouraged, and charged you. Fathers have difficult conversations. I'm a dad now with older kids, and sometimes difficult conversations need to be had. And I, I swallow <coughs> But um, now I'm a father, I need to have that difficult conversation. How can followers help with this attitude of leaders, small group leaders, parents, workers, pastors? How can we all help with this culture of gentleness and, and boldness? Well, I think particularly with boldness, let's welcome boldness, welcome candor, candor, you know, when we're honest. We understand that difficult conversations... We understand that not just encouragement, but sometimes correction is, is part of what it means to be a mother and father in the Lord. So we, we learn to take correction and rebuke. Not we don't take offense, but we learn to take it. We hope it'll be brought gently. <laughs> but it's not like, no, it's off limits. You cannot tell me anything directly or tell us as a church anything directly. No. We exhort, we encourage, we charge, but we're like mums and dads. When we're not good at something as a church, we'll own it. We'll say, yeah, we're not good at that. We're good at that and that and that, but we're not very good at that and that. And we don't go, it's like, yeah, we're not good at that. We need to try and get better at that. 
Now, fortunately, our, per our church is perfect in everything at the moment, so. <laughs> Number five, he specifically says avoid greed, impurity, greed, that's money, impurity, that's sex, illicit <laughs> sex, flattery, there's a power component there, just running everything, the way that makes people like you, tell them what they want to hear, there's a flattery that can creep in, there's a outright deceit and error just, just not saying what's true triangulation playing people off against it's deceit not not preaching god's word faithfully we don't preach it perfectly as faithfully as we can that's that's error and he says no let's avoid those things you know that i did amongst you number six just a couple more there's a theme here of being undemanding so financially, he said, I got another job, job, had a second job. I work nights so as not to be a burden to you, particularly new converts. You know, when someone's coming into Christianity, they're trying to figure out, is this legit or is it all about the money? So as you remember, the, Sam was taking up the offering. He said, hey, if you're new here, no pressure to give. That's just a little, little bit like Paul in Thess Thessalonica. He says, especially when you're coming into the faith, I don't want you to be harassed by my thoughts about that obviously as we grow the lord we see that financial giving and money are very important very big part of our lives but not so much at the front end and then emotionally he wasn't demanding he wasn't demanding financially he wasn't demanding emotionally you, you know that because he says I was, I was a mum. i was a dad to you mothers and fathers give more than they receive right and I think this undemanding principle is, is very helpful for us as we lead at work, home, and church. We want the feel of our church, family, work. We want it, feel, it to feel like the leaders are there more for the benefit of the people than the other way around. Now, we know we've got a symbiotic relationship. But if, if the talk in a church is mostly about the pastors... If that's just, it's just out there, the pastors, the pastors, the pastors. If that gets beyond a certain point, it makes me think maybe there's a pastor-centric atmosphere in the church. I think talk should be much more about equipping the saints and the, the saints doing the work of the ministry. And it's good to know who the pastors are. We certainly honor them. Anyone in leadership at any level in church life, we, we honor that. But that's not the big story. Keep that in balance on our website and promotion. Are we, are we over-promoting a particular person? If we are, could that have ram poor ramifications down the road? And when we celebrate things as a church, like various anniversaries, what are we celebrating? We want to be celebrating the church, the people of God, and what the Lord has done. It's interesting when we come to a, you know, appoint leaders, and I know we do a lot of unofficial appointing of leaders. Please, could you lead that? when we appoint uh, elders in due course and, and deacons, in the Bible it just says, and they appointed elders, full stop. That <laughs> wasn't particularly elaborate or ornate. It was an under, there's an undemanding feel. But then hang on, Paul says in verse 6, he could have made demands as an apostle. He was probably thinking about finances, but what's interesting is that the Bible does say certain things about leaders 
that should be given to leaders. They should be paid. So 1 Timothy 5, don't muzzle the ox. They should be given honor. Should be given some respect. So this is interesting. The Bible does say, no, leaders should be given some things. But Paul says, I didn't demand those things. What's going on? I think what's going on is that Paul knows that in the kingdom, it's much better for people to offer than leaders to demand. That's, that's when it feels free and good. Look at this little table uh, I've got up here. So what, it, what does the Bible say to followers about remuneration? 1 Timothy 5, it says, don't muzzle the ox that treads the... It, he's saying, saying, if an ox works, he should be able to eat. To leaders, what does the Bible say? Be content with what, you've got, what you've got. Be eager to serve people more than gain financially. That's 1 Peter 5, 2. And things get out of kilter if the leader usurps the follower verses. Don't muzzle me! Don't, I need more grain! Gets a bit orcs then. Or it gets awkward if the people usurp leadership scriptures, which is, you should be content. Our job is to keep you humble and poor. No, it's not your job. That's my job. It's in my column. You should be eager to... Ser- no, the, the Lord says that to me. The Lord says to you, you this. Okay, let's take another area. Respect. Uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen uses the O word to leaders. Obey. And in the original Greek, that means obey. And I know this is like, it's like a, this is a a pain point if you've been abused in this area, but we preach the Bible. We don't preach out of past experience, right? But the Bible says obey and submit to your leaders. Now there's, there's caveats to this in scripture. You obey the Lord more than leaders. You don't, uh, uh, you wouldn't obey your leaders if they're asking you to do something unscriptural or if your conscience isn't clear. But nonetheless, the O word is used and submit to them. Children, should submit and obey, submit to and obey their parents. In the workplace, he's your boss, slaves, obey your masters. That, that's follower verses. Leader verses, Paul says, I persuade, I try to persuade your conscience. And he says, I'm not lording it over you. Um, Peter said that, and Jesus said, it's a big theme, don't lord it over. And again, difficulty arises if you grab the other group's verses. <laughs> So if the leader is saying, obey me and submit to me, or you get your henchman to say that for you, it gets weird. But it also gets weird if uh, the people say, ah, yes. No, you can't press too hard. You're lording it over me. No, you're lording it over me. And it locks leaders up. You can't charge. You can't exhort. You can't encourage. You can't urge. Because the people play the, ah, oh, you're lording it, he's heavy-handed. No, you need, we need to stay in our columns, and that, then the thing flows. Uh, one more. Team and leader. That's implicit in Scripture. Elders, there'll be a leader, but there's a team. Uh, I love how Paul treats Apollos in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul wants Apollos to do something, and Apollos says, no, I'm not going to do it, but with a beautiful attitude. He says, I'll do it just as soon as I can. And Paul doesn't say, you should have obeyed me, Apollos. Are you not a team guy? Are you on the team or off? He just says, Apollos will when he can. He respected Apollos' conscience. So our summary in all of this is, 
terms of demanding and undemanding, it's better for leaders not to make demands and for followers not to make them want to. <laughs> and one more. We've got time for the last one. The blessing and protection of imitation. Verse 14, for you brothers, Paul says, became imitators of the churches of God in Judea. Isn't that a lovely and interesting thing that he said? He said, you copied other churches. They were strong in bearing up under persecution, and you have copied them and also been strong in bearing up under persecution. That was the specific thing he, he said. Well done for imitating other churches. But the principle of imitation is so beautiful, isn't it? The principle is we should imitate other churches in areas that they're strong. Now, that presupposes we are in good enough relationship with other churches to know what their strengths are. And that's why we're part of a movement or family of churches called Advance. We've got lots of churches. Leaders come in and help us, not as guest speakers, but they train leaders and sniff around and see how we're doing. We go to them. We help out other churches. We've got a whole, whole sort of matrix of of finding out what are other churches doing well and where are they weak. And we can help you in your area of weakness and we, we need your help in our area of strength. And what it does is it creates a culture of honor amongst the body of Christ and uh, mutuality. We're governance, in terms of governance, we're an independent church, but we're interdependent in terms of spirit. Legally independent, but in terms of heart and spirit, we're interdependent. So we know other churches, and also our, our eye is drawn to, when you look at another church, or hear about another church, or visit another church, what's our, our eye drawn to? The nine out of ten things that you think, oh, I wouldn't do it like that. No, our eye is drawn to the one thing, or the two things, or the three things, but wow, they're good at that. that that's where we go. Because in order to imitate other churches' strengths, you've got to spot other churches' strengths. You've got to believe that other churches do have strengths. I was chatting to um, someone this week. I said, oh, um, uh, he said, uh, he said, oh, when, you know, knew I was a pastor. He said, oh, I go, I go to Fourth Pres, Fourth Presbyterian Church. And I said, oh, great. How, how's it? And he said, oh, I love it. The church has been going 200 years. And we know what we believe about things and there's no arguments. <laughs> and I said, that is fantastic. And what went through my mind is they've been going 199 years longer than we have. Respect to Fourth Pres. Now, I don't know much about Fourth Pres, but I know that they've stood for 200 years. And to do that, oh, that's impressive. I bet there's so many good things in play in Fourth Pres. Every day I drive past the International, International Church of God, that big blue and white building on 124. Uh, Ash and I, our family, we've been there, uh, visited them. We know a couple of people there. What a life-giving church. Man, if you want a bit of faith and life, that's a great church. If you're trying to figure out where the monument's the church for you, I would say don't choose us before trying out them and try out Fourth Pres. These churches have got strengths. We, we know why we're doing some things a certain way. We're on the same team as them. We've got clear convictions about what we're doing, but we're not saying we're better than them. We're saying they are imitable 
in so many areas. We want to imitate Fourth Pres. We want to imitate International Church of God. They are so friendly. You know, if you visit a big unfriendly church, like huge, amazing building, but no one says hello to you, what do you tell people? Don't, don't say no one said hello to me. Say, you know, it's, they've got this huge building. It must have taken real faith and generosity to build that place. And they're now coping with a large congregation. It must be pretty difficult to, to maintain a family atmosphere. We speak with grace about our differences. You don't pull a funny face. Says, and someone says, do you know about that church? You don't go... I'm saying nothing. <laughs> I say, yeah, I, I, I know about it. H- how's it going there? Do you know? Oh, that's tricky. Well, we must pray for that. Yeah, we struggle with that as well as our, at our church. Obviously, if there's A-grade heresy going on, then we obviously say so, but we say that gently.